Welcome to Fishtory, your source for fish and aquarium history. Today's sponsor is ShrimpEnvy.com. Shrimp Envy is a wonderful handmade organic shrimp food line. You can find it at ShrimpEnvy.com and use promo code FISHTORY at checkout, F-I-S-T-O-R-Y, at checkout for 10% off of your entire purchase at ShrimpEnvy.com. Check it out, 100% all-natural food, using ingredients such as stinging nettle, mulberry leaves, spirulina, kale, spinach, and much more. Check out your complete line of food, Shrimp Envy. It's only natural. Hey guys, and welcome to The Secret History Living in Your Aquarium. We are going to be talking about the history of fish keeping as well as some horticultural fish keeping. That stems all the way back to 6,500 BC in the Fertile Crescent, Samaria, if you remember that from grade school or from college or wherever you learned at high school. You probably learned about the Fertile Crescent and Babylon and all that. Maybe you know it from the Bible or the Quran or the Torah, whatever. But in any case, we're going to start way back then, go up through the Egyptian and Roman period, up through the 1800s. We're also going to talk about, kind of separately, because it'll be a separate whole series, about the Asian keeping of fish, because they were far ahead of the Europeans. And they also had a closer variety of hardy, uh, attractive fish to keep as well with China being so vast and Japan also both of them having subtropical regions so let's discuss this I'll jump right in right now you're looking at a pond and uh, just explain this first so these are a series of ponds which were keeping fish in ancient Assyria Sumeria and the Middle East uh, city-states like Ur Ugarit Babylon, which is now modern-day Baghdad, they kept fish, they would divert river flow, they would trap them in weirs, which are like baskets that, that catch things, or in damming a river. They could then use that for irrigation of crops, which was phenomenal engineering at the time, and also they could flood their fields to saturate things in a, in a warm area. Same with Egypt. They also used giant uh, pens like these out on the saltwater areas in Israel, Saudi Arabia, up through Turkey, down through Morocco, Tunisia, Egypt, all over the Mediterranean, really, where they would have these big pens back to the Egyptian age. And they would allow salt water to come in a couple feet deep, maybe two feet deep, and then they would allow it to the tide to come in and then they would close off the pens with gates and they would allow it to go back out and they knew, knew when the high tide was coming they'd collect all the fish out of there that had swam in there and they knew which ones were going to stay alive in, in pens farther in and they would leave the gate open enough that water could flow back and forth Hawaiians also did this Polynesian people also did this in later years this is not a new thing Native Americans also did this with stone ponds, rock ponds, and things like that. But that is not aquarium keeping in the modern sense of keeping fish. Now, let me also say I'm a history major, an anthropologist. Uh, I have a background in anthropology, archaeology, 
geology and a little bit of biology, obviously, with the archaeology. So I've looked into this quite a bit, but I may be missing things. It's actually not a very well-covered topic on the internet. There are some great books out there, but they go into such detail that you would probably be very bored. So I'm going to kind of give you the crash course on this. So here we go. So from there, you have things such as the goldfish, and that is probably where we should start as calling the f with calling the first uh, ornamental kept fish. And this is, you know, we have we have mentions of fish being kept in Roman times under beds. There's this this uh, myth that goes around or wives' tale about that. We don't know if they were keeping fish for. Uh, to look at in bowls or in marble slabs that look kind of like sarcophagus, but we don't think that the Romans, we think the Romans would have talked about it more if it were like a household pet or if they domesticated anything. It's more than likely that the Romans were keeping fish in that same ancient style, which is to eat later. Later in the Christian era, you also see people storing fish for the next day. They go to market, they get the fish. On Friday, it was common not to eat red meat. And so they would store fish also. So it's not clear whether the fish were salted and dead or alive or kept in water. Whatever the deal was, wasn't clear. And we don't have primary sources, although there are sources from the 17 and 1800s talking about the Romans in this way. But that was the Enlightenment period, and they liked to talk about Rome because it was what we kind of built our republic and our democracies on with the Enlightenment era. So they wanted to build up the Roman and the Greeks as these civilized folks, which they were, I mean, by, by, by the standards of the time. So let's talk about next, you know, these fish, these goldfish, these are not goldfish. These are orange carp, and there's a big difference because at, in the Song Dynasty around 960 AD is when we first start seeing ornamental fish kept, and that's goldfish like that we know for sure were kept. We know that the Romans actually got sharks in from from the ocean and they would throw them in pens and watch have people watch them fight. They had aqueduct systems to get salt water in. They had ship battles where they would put catfish and things in the water for entertainment in in a coliseum and things like that. I'm still not counting that as aquarium keeping. Uh, they didn't need to keep them alive, and they were not there just for the sake of looking at the fish necessarily as more of a spectacle or war games or just to show exotic uh, reaches of the empire. And you will see more of that parallel of empire and colonialism and imperialism trying to show off uh, the treasures from their far-flung empire later in this talk. So, back to the goldfish. Golden carp were bred, so they were first bred for food at least a thousand years ago. We know probably almost 2,000 years ago they were probably being kept in ponds for food. Then the people who took care of them started selectively breeding the mutating ones. Sometimes you'd end up with one like that bottom one with some orange speckles and things like that. Well, they'd select those and they'd breed them with other orange speckled ones and, and so on and so forth until they arrived at goldfish as we know them today. We call them all goldfish, but they were reserved for the emperor. So under the Song Dynasty in 968 through 975, there were laws passed that only royalty could keep the golden carp. 
So the orange goldfish that we call goldfish here in the United States uh, could be kept by lesser royalty and, and, and wealthy aristocrats, things like that. But the golden ones, since gold is a revered color, and the more reddish ones were basically off limits for the public. They were kept in palace gardens and traded among very, very rich or uh, seen as sacred emperors. They had a thing called the Mandate of Heaven, which basically it's similar to the Pope in that they say that the people will allow you to rule and as long as you can control things, uh, that is God's blessing and you are God's word on earth. You are a God, so to speak. So you don't want to mess with God's fish. Big trouble, death penalty. So, moving on, these fish uh, under Emperor Hayu Tsung, and I'm sorry if I'm butchering these names, he breeds a bunch of strains of these, and he starts passing them out and shipping them around the country, and that's in 1136. Goldfish then seem to kind of get out of the royal hands, and people begin to keep them. So, by 1500, goldfish are common pets all across China, as well as Korea and down into Thailand and other places into the uh, Indian subcontinent as well. Also making its way into Persia, goldfish are a common uh, item to have present for uh, Nowruz, which is Persian New Year's, and uh, there's, there's all sorts of things associated with goldfish and luck and their color. And still gold in China was uh, revered, so that's why we know the goldfish as this orange or yellow or black or white or puffy eyeballs or however you think of it. That's why we know them that way rather than the actual shimmering gold color, which is less common, less desired almost uh, these days. Now, Around 1616, it is believed that goldfish entered Japan, and that's the first writing on it. This is where they will be refined into koi, an incredible fish. They start to also make uh, ryukin goldfish, and the goldfish you think of with the puffy eyes and the big tails and the big heads or the round uh, ball-shaped goldfish, things like that. They start selectively breeding right away, as the Japanese do. Like, they refine crafts. They, they are an island country with limited resources, and they, they will take, historically, they take whatever they have, they take it seriously, and they refine it. So you're, you're, you may be thinking, okay, this is all going on in the East. What's going on in Europe? Well, in Europe, they're keeping ponds uh, on rich estates. They're keeping ponds for uh, communities. Sometimes there'll be like a community garden and pond set up where they'll have catfish and trout and things like that. Also, fishing is obviously a huge draw, and so they will keep fish for a number of days fresh at market in tanks. So that idea begins to become popular, keeping them in baskets or tanks. But in the old world, we still kind of have this bizarro uh, view of scary dark ages, monsters at the end of the map, and it isn't until later that we really start seeing uh, colonialism, the Enlightenment, and somewhat the exploration of the New World, at least opening eyes to what's out there. So, again, the Chinese and Japanese, you can see here is a print from the 1700s. 
this is just showing, you can see the goldfish have better form there. They have uh, the googly eyes and the big bodies and the tail, and there's even some comedy with the cat and the fish, that age-old uh, battle that goes on. But you can see they're kept in a bowl rather than a glass. And you can also see they're keeping plants. So it, the aeration of these was not as necessary with carp, but moving on, you need to aerate other fish, and so they had bad luck keeping a lot of fish other than carp and catfish early on. Moving on into Europe, in the year 1691, goldfish were brought to Portugal. In Portugal, they were kept in ponds, baskets, uh, pottery, as well as the first tanks would happen about a, 120 years later. And that would be known as the aquarium. So in Portugal, they began to import these from uh, Asia, which they had colonial uh, spice trades with. They also began to look into places like Africa that have cichlids, and uh, down into Southeast Asia, they're looking at things like, uh, as we today call them, bettas or Siamese fighting fish. But that was more locally held because it was a months-long journey to get back to Europe and the temperature change and having to keep the water clean. It just, they would almost always die and they brought them back as specimens in jars of alcohol and things like that rather than actually having them alive. So there were natural history museums in these countries at, in the late 1600s, 1700s, but it wasn't really uh, a live history. So... Moving on, you can see that the goldfish spreads throughout Europe. Holland, by 1780, so 100 years after first introduced, starts an active uh, economic interest in breeding goldfish. They start refining goldfish. They start making all different colors of goldfish. They're kind of doing what the Japanese did. They also had a similar thing going on before this with tulips, and that was one of the first economic bubbles, which is a whole other story for you people interested in uh, economics, but basically tulips got up to the price of like a million dollars a bulb for the elite, and all of a sudden tulips became, I mean, they reproduce, so you can make more, and so rare tulips become less rare, and all of a sudden the bottom falls out. Well, the same goes for goldfish. They start as an aristocratic uh, fish thing to own. Basically, you can see people had their portraits with their goldfish in the 1800s. People started to have them in bowls, and the glass blowing industry began to come out with these one piece glass uh, fixtures, and they would come up with things like candelabras and and uh, tanks and porcelain pots all over for goldfish, and people would start breeding them, and it was kind of secret, like how you got your goldfish. Uh, to be the best-looking goldfish. People put them in their ponds to keep down mosquitoes, and they put them in their fountains, which is interesting, because without knowing it, they're putting goldfish and other fish, even, into their fountains, which are aerated and circulated water, and that's why they do better. And they didn't know the nitrogen cycle like we do, but it was noticed that in fountains, fish do better. So they started to realize something with oxygen exchange needed to happen in most species other than uh, goldfish, and which are carp, and other uh, similar fish. So I'm calling uh, koi, goldfish, carp, all those I'm kind of classifying as the early fish that were kept. So in 
Moving on from 1780 in Holland, in the mid-1800s is when fish and aquariums really hit their stride and become a word, a thing, a cultural phenomenon. So the first person to actually coin the term, and here's more pictures of simple, basically they would catch whatever they could in fresh water. They'd oftentimes have these vivariums, and they would keep them and maybe for a couple days study them, but they weren't having great luck keeping them alive long term. Then this guy comes around in the mid-1800s, and he is named Lavelle Reeve. And he is a naturalist, biologist. He starts to study snails and cephalopods and sea cucumbers and all sorts of nautilus and things like that. And he realizes that they are the garbage cleaners in, in the natural world, or at least one of them. He didn't know about the bacteria yet. You know, this is before antibiotics and all that. But he did realize that the fish tanks with snails and things like that did much better when they were trying to haul uh, specimens back. And he wrote extensively on snails. Snails actually became kind of a cool thing to keep because there's terrestrial snails. There are from Africa where empire had spread and trade had spread. There are giant snails and things like that. Hermit crabs also along that same guideline can live without the water. So things like that or turtles that are semi-aquatic begin to kind of enter the minds of naturalists and some pet keepers, but not widespread. So we have this guy publishing works on snails early on. We have these indoor uh, solariums. This is from a book called The Ocean at Home, and that's what it translates to. It's a German book. And basically, people living on the coast would oftentimes have aquariums, and they would try to keep fish and sea anemones and things like that that were local to their region, and they would need to constantly be changing the water. Artificial salt begins to enter, but it really took a lot of time and skill to dial that in, and it wasn't really until the turn of the century that they had a stable way to do that, and it was still... Uh, very frequently everything could die in an aquarium. So just just a note on that is why they didn't really become widespread and why the rich could afford to bring these things in where maybe you bring 50 fish in, 30 die right off the bat, 20 die in the first month, and maybe the most hardy can survive for a few months or something like that. So they also begin to build these vivariums where they have actual uh, air up in here they have plants going on water snails sand and that is proposed well there there are a number of people and it's argued who who is the modern inventor of the aquarium but uh, Jean Villepoux-Powell is a woman who first actually collected a lot of things from the wild, and she was a naturalist. She actually was a woman in France who was in charge of many, many things. She made royal gowns and dresses, and we're going to get to her in a moment. But simultaneously to the people uh, like her, and a little bit later, Philip Goss, who was a um, British person who studied uh, all sorts of things, you know, back in the day when you didn't necessarily just study one thing, you weren't a zoologist, you were a naturalist, you studied biology, zoology, chemistry, water, and he is really the first person to write a good treatise in the English-speaking world on fish, on keeping them, 
But there are other works coming out, such as like A Boy's Guide, that have, they talk about fish keeping and catching them, more so still for food or for a bit of entertainment for a few hours, keeping minnows for a week or two, then the water gets cloudy, then you move on. Uh, but it's going on, it's becoming more popular, it's getting published. We've got the printing press in, in you know, which happened 400 years earlier than this, but with the Gutenberg press, news is getting around. Also, another big change was railways. We're able to get things from the coast all the way inland, so places like Detroit or Paris or inside of Germany and uh, Prague, people are getting fish, people are getting goods, luxury goods, and steamships are going across the ocean. Some of this gets into the 20th century, but it begins to start early on in the, the mid-1800s, and all this is going on while these naturalists are exploring. Now, meantime, Europe is carving up all sorts of territory, and their ever-expanding trade is going on. Darwin is out finding things out about the world and evolution. The Enlightenment is at its, at its peak, so to speak. Of It starts with the end of the Renaissance and goes into uh, the scientific era, the French Revolution. We, we start thinking of people power and individuals mattering more than peasants and there being a middle class and the Industrial Revolution, people have it hard still in the 1850s, but people do have free time, and there's a wealthy class that has lots of free time, and they want to show off the fruits of their labor of taking over things uh, colonially. So here we have a map of Europe in the 1800s. You've got Napoleon's France after he calmed down. You've got Great Britain and Ireland. You've got... Uh, Prussia and the Habsburgs, you got Saxony under the Holy Roman Empire, which is farther north in modern-day Germany, part of Poland, and part of Italy, I suppose. Then, you know, moving on, you have that reaching out, and let's get back to the female I was speaking about. A incredible woman, you can see her here in a dress, at the age of 17, she walks to Paris from her small village, uh, it's several day journey, and she decides she's going to make something of herself. The French Revolution allows this to happen, although it was a violent, bloody process to get representative democracy and republic government. Uh, women were allowed to be active in politics, maybe not fully to the extent of men, but France was a shining beacon of this early on. And women oftentimes were naturalists, scientists, uh, oftentimes their husbands ended up being in the same field just by proximity, and they were spending their time doing that. Well, this woman, Jean, uh, Jean Villepreux-Powell, uh, and if you're if speaking English, it looks like Jean Villepreux-Power, but, okay, I speak a little French we're going to go with the first thing I said. 1832, she starts writing. She has correspondence going back and forth between Britain and Paris. She starts talking about the idea of an aquarium and an ocean in your house. We have the idea of not just keeping them to look at, to marvel at, to study for a little bit, but long term. Also, simultaneously, we have other people like Philip Goss. We have people like Robert Washington, both in the UK 
as it was known Great Britain at the time, which had the largest empire. It had colonies over in India, down in Thailand, over in Hong Kong, and really they had taken over much of the world through their might and this plays into Darwinism a little bit, social Darwinism, and the idea that the white man should expand his modern uh, guns and steamships and railways to all of the quote-unquote savages of the rest of the world who are not Christian. And this idea becomes taken out of Darwin's hands and imposed, especially in North America, with the Spanish enslaving for years in, under the encomienda system, silver mines and things like that. That's where we get the story of Zorro, things, uh, other fish, not fish-related things, and Manifest Destiny, which was expanding westward as an American country. I live in Washington, so I'm at the terminus of Manifest Destiny and, and that taking over. We also have, so here is Philip Goss. I like to pose like that. If you notice that my local aquascaping contest that Dustin ran recently, I pose like a little chump doing that because this guy poses like this in, in a lot of his photos, which I think is great. Look at those chops on him. So in any case, this guy, Philip Goss, he is really the modern day, the guy who gets the title of modern day Aquarius, Aquarium uh, popularizing sir. And uh, Robert Washington alongside of him, in 1850, they propose uh, basically uh, Robert Washington. He's a chemist, a zoologist, and he's also into fish, an ichthyologist. He proposes that if you have snail, sand, and plants, and fish, and you change the water with their source water, you can keep fish alive indefinitely, which is a radical idea. And by 1850 to 1856, all across Europe, this notion starts spreading that let's replicate the natural world. And they're keeping things, yes, like goldfish, yes, like some saltwater fish if they're on saltwater, uh, if they're on a coastal area where they can change the water and things like that uh, easily. And those do have limited success, but really we're looking at keeping things like carp, catfish, uh, some trout, some bass, things like, you know, little critters like that in, in the New World and the Old World. But Britain was really at the terminus of this. France also opens a aquarium. The first British museum was actually at the Royal Zoo. And it was seen as, okay, let's try to bring in the most exotic things we can. And so while the majority of the exhibits were local fish or European fish that could withstand cold water and fresh water, the, the remainder of the fish in small, ornate, they would really make it ornate, and they would allow the public to come in, or at least the upper class starting out, soon to be everyone, you know, during the Industrial Revolution, you had your weekend after uh, workers got their rights, after the beginning of the, the very brutal textile and coal mining uh, era, People start becoming middle class, start uh, coming out to these aquariums and seeing what their their armies and empires have been able to go out and find. Spices and gold and cloth and designs and ornaments and people and fish and animals and zoos and things like that really start to pop up again, which hadn't been around since ancient times uh, to that extent. 
and we see here that it was a place to socialize, a place to bring children, and people actually learned quite a bit at these places. It inspired a lot of naturalists, even if they didn't live that well. A lot of the fish brought in, you'd have like 90% mortality rates, and they just focused on renewing the fish and trying to get more coming in on steamships whenever they could. So this is the French hall of the L'Aquarium de Paris, uh, and also in personal aquarium keeping, it became, naturalists began to have uh, these more elaborate tanks that are almost, almost seem like aquascapes. They didn't keep fish as frequently as they kept sea anemones, sea urchins, sea slugs, snails, things like that. They were easier to keep. And starting in, it's cut off a little bit here. Let me, let me uh, try to fix that for y'all. So, starting in 1856, the Royal Aquarium of Great Britain is founded at Westminster. And this was to be the spectacle of spectacles, the amazing, uh, the sun never sets on the British Empire. They had, they had fish from all over the world here that were hardy catfish and things like that. But unfortunately, as we progress, and you see, they were keeping them in little tanks, not big tanks. They neglected the plants. There's plants in some tanks, but they neglected that. Not good lighting, not good water changing, not good filtration. And more often than not, these tanks were under uh, construction or... Pardon uh, the inconvenience, there is no species in here. And people joked that London being on the Thames River, that it had less fish in the aquarium than outside in the city. So just, it kind of didn't work until they began to learn more, and that happens rather quickly. So... People are studying, people are gathering information all the while. I will show you at the end some gilded fish tanks and things like that, where people are successfully keeping things like minnows. And uh, by uh, 1869, the paradise fish and the betta, the Chinese fighting fish, make it to Europe. They are beautiful and they're able to be kept. Some of these early aquariums were heated by wood fire stoves and they would get too hot or too cold. It was hard to monitor things. They didn't understand much other than that the fountains gave oxygen, and so they had that sort of oxygenation filtration and substrate filtration with biological bacteria, but they had no idea really what was going on with the science behind that. Well, we come to the late 1800s, and by the 1890s in Germany, the Treaty of Berlin, Everybody gets together in Europe who's an anybody from their country, and they carve up Africa. It's a French cartoon, by the way, there. And you can see in 1880, Africa is all of these tribal kingdoms and, you know, vivid cultures and empires. Ethiopia has been around for thousands of years. And by 1913, you've got pink, the United Kingdom, blue, France... You've got Portugal in green, Spain in yellow up here. This yellow is Ethiopia. Ethiopia is the only country that did not fall under uh, European rule at any point in time. 
Now, they are a Christian country, and a lot of them claim to have uh, artifacts from uh, Jesus Christ. And this may play a part in why it wasn't taken over. But also, there are countless individuals, including um, uh, Haile Selassie later on in the 20th century. They resist imperialism and that's why in reggae music you hear Hale Selassie he's a god you know things like that uh, Ethiopia Zion uh, lions things like that it's all stemming back to the fact that he stood up for the darker skinned people and showed that they were uh, civilized so to speak that they to the British that is now, I mean now from our perspective that sounds preposterous to call someone ignorant just because they uh, live differently. But they are modern. They get guns very quickly. They trade. Menelik is the name of a leader, and Menelik II, his son. Early on, they fight off British. They fight off Italians, and they hold out Ethiopia for their own. Also, another odd little quirk in Africa in the carving up of it is uh, Liberia, which was for freed slaves from America. Now, also not uh, pictured well here are there are odd little port cities all over that these countries all had agreements to also so that they could have trade access through certain people. Uh, Belgian Congo, I just wanted to mention. Congo, we still can't get fish out of there currently very well right now. Puffer fish, we're having a hard time getting, and that is because of conflict. Conflict that was set up during colonialism when uh, the... Leopold II, he came in and he brutalized, he killed something like 3 million Congolese people, enslaving them in plantations and in mines. They have rare minerals, they have volcanoes, they have all sorts of resources and crazy different land features there. And they have 